We're right in the middle of a, uh, a series uh, going through the, the book of Hebrews. And uh, we've been, I think, in the first four verses of Hebrews since the last thing I can remember. And we could be there for a good while, yeah, but we don't really know. But hopefully we won't be, but we've been there for a while, and today's another one of those. Um, I'm going to pray in a minute. Uh, I've just taken my family, uh, Ange and I took, took our family, we've got four boys, and we just went camping for the first time. Uh, this last week, in 50k an hour wind gusts, with a very large tarp, or sail, depending on how much wind there is, <laughs> and a tent, and uh, it's, it's been a crazy, crazy week, because it's never relaxing when you take little kids camping, but it was lots of fun at times, <laughs> and not others, so uh, this is uh, what I've been able to piece together, and I really, I just want to pray that God might actually use it for you, it's probably not... In terms of prep, it's probably not the smoothest piece of work that I've put out, but at the end of the day, that doesn't really matter because in the Old Testament, God used a donkey, all right? So I'm at least level with a donkey today, all right? If you can just grant me that, just say he's as good as a donkey and God can do something with me, all right, and in your heart. So um, we're going to get to work on uh, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Why don't you pray with me, Jesus we just, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 talks about how everything holds together by your creative word. So I can't even say anything. I can't stand here. We can't even sit here. This building doesn't hold up. Uh, we're desperately in need of you all the time. And uh, we're desperately in need of your benevolence and your kindness and your goodness toward us and your mercy toward us. And I pray that you'd, uh, you'd make that uh, abundantly clear. I pray that you'd help us to have good hearts. And I pray, God, that nothing that I say this morning would malfunction in our hearts. Yeah. Amen. Hey, uh, I'm just going to... Uh, I want you to put your imagination on, all right? And I'm just going to talk a little bit about a story out of uh, Mark chapter 2. And it's a story about the paralytic that, uh, that, came, that was taken to Jesus. And we don't know a whole lot of the background, but if you actually thought about the story of the paralytic, it may go something like this. It may be that the guy has been a paralytic for a very long time. He hasn't been able to walk. He's just been lying on a stretcher. That's all he can do. I was joking on the camping trip that we were on that uh, one of our kids was um, testing out his uh, a future job as a speed bump, all right, because he was just sitting in the middle of the road at the caravan park, which is a really safe place to be. If you want to get hit by a car, that's a good place to go. But here's this guy, and all he can do is lie there. He can't do anything else. And maybe, maybe he gets depressed. Maybe he's been massively bummed out about it. Maybe he's got a few mates that care about him, and they get talking about things. And then all of a sudden, this little bit of gossip works its way through town. And they hear maybe that there's a guy that might be able to help them. They might be able to help the friend, the person who's lying on the stretcher, that maybe this guy can do something about it. And so they start dreaming and scheming. Maybe they only had... Two or three people, they needed four people to carry it. Maybe because he's a paralytic, he's big and he's fat, all right? And they need four people to carry him. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. Maybe that's how it is. And maybe they need four. Maybe they've only got two or three. Maybe they've got to con this other guy in and say, come on, just come and hold it. Hold the one corner. That's all we need. Just hold the corner because there's a chance that this paralytic guy could get helped by this guy called Jesus who's just come into town. So come and help us. Let's see if we can get him there. And so eventually they get the whole lot of them and they pick this guy up. Who knows how far they had to walk? Maybe they had to walk a long way. And they walk and walk and walk and they get to where Jesus is 
And there are so many people that they just can't get in. You just, you're not going to get in there. And they, and they go at the back and maybe they've gone, excuse me, excuse me, can we just get, and they, people go, no, no. My son's got uh, some kind of paralysis too. My mum's sick. This person's got cancer. We're not letting you in. We need to get to Jesus and you just don't get in, especially not with that thing because this house is so full. We're going to have to kick out 15 people to get that thing in. All right? Imagine that. I mean, these are some of the things I reckon that I don't often think about, the backstory behind it. So what do they do? They're just going, well, what the heck are we going to do? Maybe they walked 5Ks with this guy on a stretcher. Maybe it's like Emu Gully going through the mud for those who have been through it and you've got to carry this person... Emu Gully does this adventure thing where you've got to carry this person on a stretcher through a whole night, walk up and down cliffs and all that sort of stuff, and everyone always goes, pick the smallest person, all right? Pick the smallest person and put them on there because we've got to haul this person's backside for a long way, all right? Around the place, up and down the cliffs. So uh, who knows how far they walk? Maybe they walk five k's with this person on the stretcher and they get there and they can't even get in. That's really frustrating. Agreed? I'd be frustrated. You just go, there's a chance that this guy who's been a paralytic for a long time could actually get in and get fixed up by this guy. This is the rumour going around town, so let's get him in there. Let's get him in there. Maybe, maybe Jesus can help. So they do what any person would do who didn't know whether someone had buildings insurance on their house. They go up on the roof, all right? And the, uh, the houses back in that day were kind of a thatch kind of roof with, uh, with dirt and that kind of stuff on top. And what do you do when you don't know whether the person's got home insurance? You dig a hole in their roof, all right? This would be like someone rocking up to your house at lunchtime today with an angle, a battery-powered angle grinder and just carving a hole through your corrugated iron in your roof, all right? That would be uncool, okay? Now we've got to get a tradie in. Now we've got to get someone who's going to have to come in and fix this thing up. And, uh, and there's dirt probably falling on Jesus, all right? You imagine... How big's the stretcher? Well, that's at least how big the hole needs to be to get this guy down. They're up there and they're rigging ropes up on the corners, all right? Because technically, if you hold it all the way down, you're not holding it anymore. You're falling with it, all right? So you've got to have ropes and you've got to lower this thing down in front of Jesus and you eventually get there and maybe people on, maybe people on the inside are going, hey, wait your turn. It's not your turn. We're next. We're in line. You should have come earlier. And they lower this guy down right in front of Jesus. And you know what the first thing is that Jesus says? My son, your sins are forgiven. Now let's be honest. I don't have to have a show of hands necessarily, but how many of you would, be, would have been disappointed? That's, that's really disappointing, isn't it? It's like, that's not what we came for. We came for something totally different. We came because this guy can't walk and you just forgive his sins. But you know, in that very moment, you know what Jesus does? Is Jesus deals with that man's greatest problem. And you know, all of us have come to church today and in the back of your minds, you've got this idea about what your biggest problem is. And I'm telling you, it's not your biggest problem. You see, we come to church often with a whole sea of emotions Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you think, I'm just so emotional. I'm just upset about a whole bunch of things. That's my biggest problem. If I could just get that sorted out, I'd be right. Maybe, maybe your marriage is not doing so well. Maybe you've got a stupid husband in your mind. 
He's not doing what he's supposed to do. That's my biggest problem. If I could just get that sorted out. And that would be the thing. If I was sitting on that stretcher and I was being laid down in front of Jesus, that would be the thing that would be on my stretcher, is my marriage. I'd be saying, Jesus, this is my biggest deal. I want you to help me with it. And maybe your prayers reflect that. Maybe you've got issues in your family. Maybe you've got issues in your relationships. Truth is that conflict happens between people all the time. And the truth is in a group this size, there's a whole bunch of you that probably are right in the middle of some kind of relational conflict. And that is on your bed, on your stretcher, that you would lay down in front of Jesus and you would say, Jesus, this is my main issue. I need you to deal with this. Maybe it's financial issues. Maybe you don't have enough money. And you honestly, you just go around during the days and you just think, that's my biggest issue. That's my biggest problem. Maybe your, your children are really disobedient. You're having a really, really hard time with your kids at the moment. And you think, that's the thing. That is my biggest problem. Maybe there's some kind of technological bullying that's going on via text message or via Facebook. People are saying rude things about me. Maybe last week, oh, you know, the worst thing in my life ever happened. Someone unfriended me. All right? Seriously, like you could spend an hour or two just going, that's really bum. What do they think about me? They unfriended me. All right? And you're thinking at that moment, that is my worst problem right now. I'm just, I'm down to 220 instead of 221. That's bad. Like all of a sudden I'm a worse person because of it. Maybe your biggest issue you think is boredom. But you know what? We could put whatever thing is yours, and I haven't mentioned everyone's, but whatever thing is yours, you could put it on that stretcher and lay it down in front of Jesus. And you know what he would do? He would say, your real problem is sin. That's what it is. Your real problem is that you're disobeying me and that you're intentional about your disobedience. And to be honest, probably most of us would be disappointed when he said that. I just need you to fix my marriage. That's all I need. That's my biggest problem. I need you to fix my health. I need you to guarantee me the next 40 years of health. I spent... uh, about an hour or so with Ted Hitsky about a, a week or so ago. And Ted Hitsky's guy's been coming to the church here and he's just had some absolutely abysmal medical news. He may not live very much longer. And what's incredibly impacting about him is that he's still, by the grace of God, able to come back to what the real issues are. You sit down with him and you ask him, what, what, what are the real issues for you, Ted? And it's not, it's not like the thing that's on his stretcher is not his health and it's not the 12 or whatever tumours he's got in his body right now. The thing that's on his stretcher is he wants to be right with Jesus. He wants to stay in a sweet spot in his relationship with Jesus. The truth is that Jesus would probably disappoint most of us, wouldn't he? Because we actually think that there's things that are really important in our lives that aren't as important as sin and aren't as critical as sin. Just read Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Before I do, I'll just make this comment. Sin is a huge issue for the writer of Hebrews. All right? He sees it as a massive obstacle, which is why we're spending a couple of weeks on it now. The word for sin in this letter of Hebrews occurs 25 times and the only book that exceeds it in the whole of the Bible is Romans that has 48. He sees it as a massive obstacle. He comes to you and he says, the same as Jesus would do with the paralytic, he comes to you and he says, this is your real issue. This is a big issue. This is a big, big problem. 
And the strange thing about our culture and where we're at is people don't tend to like talking about sin. Because I don't. I said to my wife last, last night, I said, I don't even want to preach this today. Because there's a weird thing that goes on. Sin's actually a heavy, messy, disgusting thing. And then we have this other side of it where we have malfunctioning guilt, where we end up under condemnation and accusation. And so this knee-jerk response sometimes is, let's not talk about the bad stuff because I don't like the way it makes me feel condemned and I feel accused and I feel like a bad person. And it's, it's, it's a really awkward thing. Anyway, let's, let's hook in. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's a radiance of uh, the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, we're going to have two weeks just on, what's that, five words. We'll use a few words after that next week, but really we're looking at those five words. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. About 18 months ago, we went over to uh, Indonesia on a uh, kind of a missions trip. It was a pretty swanky missions trip because we kind of stayed in five-star well, four-and-a-half-star motels most of the time, so it's not your standard one, so I'm not going to say, oh, it was brutal, because it wasn't, all right? We had smorgasbord food for most lunches and stayed in this one place, and it was like 120 bucks US for 18 holes of golf. Like, it was a swanky, and I saw one dude out there, and I'm going, man, you do not have a swing that is worth 120 bucks <laughs> in this seminar, and I'm looking at him out there, and I'm just going, that is an ugly swing. Not that I'm a good golfer, but it was ugly, all right? Anyway... The first place that we went to was Bali, and we went to Denpasar Airport. Now, I haven't really been out of Australia before. I went to New Zealand, but they don't really count. All right? They're kind of Australian, and there's plenty of them in Australia anyway, so it's Kiwi in Australia if you go to the right place. But we went to Denpasar, and of course you got the Bali 9, and you got Chappelle Corby and all that kind of stuff. It was pretty freaky. Honestly, for me, I'm just kind of going, this is weird, eh? Like, I'm just going to, I'm going to end up in... Kiribati and whatever it is, prison with Chappelle. I'll do an interview with her and no one else will hear about it because I'm an inmate. All right, it's just gonna, it's gonna be messy and you get there and you just, I'm nervous because I'm just going, they're gonna find something, man. There's gonna be some drugs in my boogie board and I don't even have a boogie board. <laughs> Someone's gonna give me one and it'll have my name. Anyway, you, you walk up and I'm just kind of going, okay, where's customs? How do we get out of this thing? And you're looking around and people have literally shrink wrapped their bags. Right, so they've just got people at the airport who just shrink wrap it, so it's like people, everyone's going to know whether it's been tampered with, except for the fact that the dudes that tampered with it could have a shrink wrap machine, right? And they pull it off and then they wrap it up again. So I don't understand it. But anyway, then we walk we walk through uh, customs, which and I said to the person I was with, I said, "So uh, is that it?" And they're going, "That's it." It was like the most lax security. I couldn't believe it. All right, but you know, sin at some level is a bit like what happened to Chappelle Corby. All right? I'm not even going to go into whether she's guilty or innocent, but she gets to customs and she gets searched and she's all of a sudden she's found out, or maybe she knew all the way along, who knows? She's got some contraband material that she should not have and she's in trouble. She's in big trouble. And you know, sin's a lot like that with us, isn't it? It's like you get, you're getting busted. You get caught out and there's nothing you can do about it because the stuff was in your boogie board bag. All right? And when it comes to your relationship with God, this is what sin is, right? The stuff is in your backpack 
And you can't deny that it's not your stuff because uh, it is. You just can't. It's, you're stuck with it. And you're guilty. You're absolutely guilty. There's some common approaches to uh, sin. I just wanted to run through some of these. The first thing that people do with sin is they deny it even exists. All right? This classic uh, Genesis uh, chapter 3, it's not really sin. It's, 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 just, it's just not. It's, it's just not even there. In our culture, sometimes what uh, actually happens, in fact, culturally this happens most of the time, is uh, we relativise it. All right? We just say, well, whatever's true for you. You've just got to work out morality based on what you think and, uh, and what your ideas are. And, uh, and that's, that's going to be what morality is for you. So if for you, um, it's kind of a weird one because no one likes pedophiles. And no one likes what pedophiles do, but everyone's still kind of saying you work out your own morality based on what you think. But yet they don't want really bad people to be working out their morality by what they think. They want to put rules on them. So it's a weird kind of deal, but that's kind of what happens. We deny guilt. Um, this happens. Whenever a Christian stands up and makes some kind of moralistic statement in the media, this is a thing that happens all the time, they actually get demonised. And people who, who have got a moral perspective actually get viewed as the enemy. Like, you're the bad people and you're stopping us from having fun. All right? You're just bad. You shouldn't be saying things like that. Um, there was an era where uh, psychology was even saying that moral rules actually created unhealthy um, psychological health for people. You can call people with a moral opinion intolerant. That's another thing that happens. It's a classic one. The weird thing about intolerance is people go, oh, you disagree with me and you're really intolerant. Well, I don't know how you can be tolerant unless you disagree with someone. Do you get that? Because that's what tolerance is. Tolerance is, I disagree with you, but I'm still going to love you anyway. But in our culture, there's this whole thing going on where it's like you're not even allowed to disagree with someone because all of a sudden that's intolerant. So you actually have to agree with them. And if you agree with them, you can't be tolerant because you agree with them. Does that make sense? It's just a weird thing. This is what we do with it. Glorifying sin and pursuing it. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a sec. That's one thing that we do. And here's something I personally think is creeping into Christian culture a little bit is we talk about sin as a mistake. All right? And I've heard a little bit of this lately. I think this is really dangerous. Let me give you a dictionary def uh, for mistake. A mistake is a thing that is incorrect, an error of judgment. Honestly, is that what it is? Is that all it is? Is it just like, hey, okay, I just got that one wrong? Is it like a wrong answer in a test? I don't think so. I uh, didn't get to take a photo of it, but at the um, caravan park we stayed with, there was this sweet A-frame sign for a, uh, a Magnum ice cream variety that's come out. And if you actually do a search on the advertising campaigns for Magnum, it is just, it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, these guys are just dead set, honestly. And I like the ice creams, right, but they're just selling sin. That's what they're doing, all right? They're selling all the things that are festy, and they're selling it in their ice box. In fact, it was only a few years ago they actually had a whole campaign where they had the seven deadly sins. You remember that? For Magnum ice creams. And every sin had an ice block. All right? The only one I reckon that really made sense was the sloth one because if, if you ate enough of those, that's what you'd be. All right? You'd be lying on a couch with way too much weight on your hips. Okay? Here's uh, one of the latest ones off the net. Uh, look at that. Yeah, temp Magnum Temptation. 
Listen, look at this little jingle thing down here. The ultimate pleasure. Seriously. Like, think about that. If an ice cream is the ultimate pleasure in life, that's depressing. <laughs> Isn't it? That is really, really depressing. Because all you, the best that you're going to get in your life is chocolate sauce, white chocolate, and delicious brownie pieces. But let's glorify temptation because temptation is a really good thing. And then I found this. And this, uh, this is just sensational in totally the wrong way. Look at this. This dude's written two books. One called The Joy of Sin, The Psychology of the Seven Deadlies and Why They Are So Good for You. This is like a psychologist dude. And up the top there, The Science of Sin. Let me read a little bit of the uh, little blurb on it. Pride, lust, gluttony, greed, envy, sloth and anger. These seven sins are considered deadly because of their capacity to generate other evils. Truth is, we all sin and we do it all the time. In fact, usually several times over before breakfast. He's going pretty well at this point. But human behaviour argues social psychologist Simon M. Lamb is more complex than good or evil. That's a good thing he's smart enough about that. In psychology, these sins aren't considered morally wrong or even uniformly bad, but are instead treated as complex and interesting psychological states that, if indulged in wisely, can be functional and adaptive and can lead to a range of positive effects. Get into it, he's saying. So go ahead. This is the last paragraph. Eat that last cookie. Kick back on the couch for a day of TV with your neighbour's boyfriend. From gluttony to greed, envy to lust, Latham, sorry, Liam shows... How even the deadliest, most decadent of vices can make you smart, successful and happy. That's what we do. That's what our culture does. And I mean, you don't have to go too far. You, can, you just need to go to reality TV shows and everyone loves a good fight. Everyone loves people hating each other and just getting into it. That's what we want to watch on TV and we're just going to talk it up. We're going to market it. I'm going to show you a clip out of a movie called The Green Mile. The, uh, the Green Miles really, uh, it's a story about this uh, big black guy called John Coffey and he's on death row. Uh, he's been accused of raping and killing some young girls, which it turns out by the end of the movie you've got a pretty clear idea that he didn't do it. Uh, it's a really brutal movie. Uh, the Green Mile is the green linoleum between uh, death row and where they got executed in the States. And uh, there's this really interesting thing that's actually happened throughout the movies. This guy, John Coffey, has got this... It's from based on a Stephen King novel. He's got this amazing ability to actually suck badness out of people and suck tumours and, 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 and death, basically, out of things and to bring healing to things. And what you're actually going to see here at the end is about uh, two days, I think, before he gets executed. And the main jailer there comes to John Coffey and he says... Uh, I feel terrible. There's no way that I can actually go through and execute you because he's just a beautiful, tender, emotional, um, healing man. That's just what he does. And he's just been wrongfully accused. But there's no way. He can't get out of it. No one can get him out of it. And uh, this jailer is just freaking out about the execution because he thinks this is a really, really bad thing that I've got to do and it's on the wrong person. And this guy's brought so much health to people. Um, I'll roll it.
I guess you know we're coming down to it now. Another couple of days. Especially you want to eat for dinner that night? Can rustle you up most anything. Meatloaf be nice. Mashed taters, gravy, okra. Maybe some of the fine cornbread your missus make, if she don't mind. Preacher, somebody to say a little prayer with. Don't want no preacher. You can say a prayer if you like. Me? I suppose I could if it came to that. John, I have to ask you something very important now. I know what you're going to say. You don't have to say it. No, I do. I do have to say it. John, tell me what you want me to do. You want me to take you out of here? Just let you run away? See how far you could get? Why would you do such a foolish thing? On the day of my judgment... When I stand before God and he asks me why did I, did I kill one of his true miracles? What am I going to say? That it was my job. It's my job. You tell God the Father it was a kindness you done. I know you're hurting that word. I can feel it on you. But you ought to quit on it now. I want it to be over and done with. I do. I'm tired, boss. I'm tired of being on the road, lonely as a sparrow in the rain. I'm tired of never having me a buddy to be with. Tell me where we's going to, coming from or why. Mostly I'm tired of people being ugly to each other. I'm tired of all the pain I feel and hear in the world every day. There's too much of it. It's like pieces of glass in my head all the time. Can you understand? Yes, John, I can. He's got a really sensitive heart, doesn't he? And that's what's being portrayed there. There's a really sensitive heart. And I just love that image where he just said, it's just like glass in my head. The evil and the pain and the way that treat, people treat each other is like glass in my head. I wonder... For us, here we're going with having a sensitive heart to what goes on in our world. The church is pretty good sometimes at being really judgmental and self-righteous, but in terms of just, it just hurts me. 
It's like glass on my head. I feel like I'm in the, in the bottom of a pestle and water and I'm just being ground down. The sin and evil in the world, does it have that kind of effect on you? Second Peter 2 verse 7 talks about Lot from uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says, For as that righteous man Lot lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. It can do that to you. It honestly can do that to you. Just being exposed to it can really just torment you. So I just ask you as we hook in, is, is that you? And you see here in this clip that the jailer is grappling with guilt, isn't he? He's, he's grappling with it. And he's trying to work out how am I going to handle this? How am I going to do this? Because the truth is that guilt and shame actually reveal sin. Guilt actually reveals that I've done something wrong, that I've offended some moral code or I've offended God. See, the definition for guilt here is the fact of having committed an offence or a crime, a feeling of having done something wrong or failed an obligation. You see, guilt is the objective experience that we've done something wrong, and shame is the subjective component of feeling guilty. The weird thing about our culture is that people don't really believe in God that much anymore. They don't want to talk about a moral law, so they, they want to dispense with guilt. But our, our culture is full of shame. Heaps and heaps of shame. If nothing else, the whole statement that I have very low self-esteem is a shame statement. I'm not good enough. I fall short. But the truth is that everything, all sin, everything that people do that's bad and harmful and evil is always against God. You can see that in Psalm 51. And we live in this culture, I tweeted this a little while ago, uh, Philippians 3.19, I think there's probably no greater definition of our culture regarding guilt and shame than this one. This is Philippians 3.19. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. You read that one out the front of Sizzler exit door. And they glory in their shame. Isn't that exactly what our culture does? Like, not only have we done away with guilt, but we've actually, all we've got left is shame, so what are we going to do with it? Well, we actually don't believe anymore in a God that covers our shame and that actually helps us when we fall short. So what we've got to do is we've either got to deny that it even exists or we've got to just flaunt it. I mean, that's reality TV in my view. Reality TV is let's flaunt the things that we ought to be shameful about. And it, the weird thing is that we like to watch, read and be exposed to stuff like that sometimes. And I'm not saying that to have a go at you. I'm just saying that's a, it's a weird thing. It's almost like somehow if we read about someone else's shame, it kind of covers our shame a little bit more and we don't feel as exposed anymore. God gave this really cool thing to everyone called the conscience. And the conscience actually reveals guilt. I was uh, talking to someone a little while ago who told me that they have had this repeated sin in their life for a long time. And they said, they literally said this to me, that it was three years ago that they stopped feeling bad about it. That's a long time. It's almost like they've gotten in the ring with their conscience and they beat the living daylights out of it until it didn't work anymore on this particular issue. But the cool thing is, this is a beautiful thing that God's given to all of us, is that he's given us all a conscience. H.L. Mencken said this, the conscience is the mother-in-law whose visit never ends. You like that one? I thought that's pretty right. Here's what uh, Ed Welsh said about uh, the conscience. It can only make you feel bad. 
A conscience is limited in its ability to help you out. It has the power to make us feel guilty but not innocent. It has the power to say, don't do that, but not the power to keep us from doing it. It looks inward for truth, sees judgment, and sees us naked and alone before the judge. And this is what happens. And I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what kind of week you've had. When I was prepping this last night, I was just, man, my conscience was, I think, in a really godly way, but it was just working overdrive, and I was just feeling, man, I'm just, I've got so much junk and so much... Trouble, but the problem with your conscience is it doesn't help you that much. It helps you to see what you've done wrong, but it doesn't help you to get out of it. Typically, what your conscience does is it shows you what's wrong, and the knee-jerk response from humans is, I've just got to work harder. Hit the button on the treadmill and get this thing going quicker, and I'll run harder and harder and harder, and hopefully I can get my way out of it. That's basically how the conscience works. The problem is that we're actually really, really dirty, and I don't mean that in a cultural way. We're just really, really dirty. You see, one night, I've got to tell you this. I'll tell you this short story. I'm a blues supporter, right? There you go. Let's put it out there. Yeah. Shame, shame. This. You should be guilty. You're living in Queensland. My wife says it all the time. She says, how can you live in Queensland and support the blues? I'm just going, I don't know. It's just, you know, especially after the last six years or whatever, it's just like I should just make a permanent paper bag that I can wear over my head for about six weeks while the Origin series is on. But uh, Blues supporter. Anyway, I, uh, for a few years I kept it pretty quiet at the school and then one year I just thought, no, I'm going public on this, right? So I, just, I bought a Blues football and a scarf and a flag and put it all out there on assembly one day at school here. And Queenslanders being really cheap shot kind of people, they just came and stole all my gear, right? <laughs> They just stole it. And uh, the first Origin, uh, this is, I can't even remember what year this was in, but it was a year that it was, the first Origin was on, and pretty much everyone's just going, New South Wales are terrible. They're not even going to get close, right? Now, I'm sitting at home on my own watching it, and I know about half a K down the road, there's a whole bunch of grade 12s from the school here watching the Origin, right? Half time, New South Wales are up by 14 nil. Does anyone remember that one? I do, because it was the only time I felt like we were winning. All right? But they're up like 14 nil, right? So I've just gone, oh, I've just got to hit that house, right? I've just got to go down there because I knew the parents. And so I jumped in the car and I went down and parked on the side of the road and ran up this kind of laneway to this house. And I've gone up and I've knocked on the door and literally the doors opened after that. And there were two girls. One of them had my blues flag and the other one had a lighter and they were going outside to burn it. <laughs> and it was like, I was just going, God just got you. Like they go, ah, what are you doing here? <laughs> and you know, I reckon sin and guilt's a little bit like that, isn't it? It's just like you've done some stuff. Ah, what are you doing here? I didn't know you saw it. You, you busted. Busted. I've got to show you this uh, little ad. This is a Walmart ad from the States. I just thought this is classic, right? Because the interesting thing is those who have had kids, have you got, do you guys remember a time with your kids where... They've gone outside and they've got themselves really trashed with dirt, right? Then they come in and, and of course, especially the mother's response is, oh, my goodness, look at you, all right? And all of a sudden the kid goes, oh, no, I'm dirty, all right? It's like it never occurred to them before that, but when their mum says, look at you, that, whoa, okay, and it's like their hands are covered in dirt and they start cleaning themselves, Yeah? Anyone ever seen that? And they're just, and you go, oh, no, no, don't do that. Just don't touch yourself. That'll make it worse. Like, seriously, it's almost like spread your legs and your hands and put your hands on the car and 
let me pull the stuff off and let's see how we can go. Well, this is a little bit like that. Here we go. Tried laundry detergent, downy fabric softener, bounce dryer sheets, and a pie pan. Looks like someone used my nice clean towels again for a smut pies. Look at me. Who's this? That guy. I've seen that guy in my life. Only Walmart has low prices every day on everything to keep your wash fresh and clean. Back by our ad match guarantee. Save money. Live better. Walmart. Classic game. So even in that ad, you can see Walmart or the advertising company behind it are going, there's guilt, there's an issue, there's, there's dirt on this kid, and even that kid knows that he's got to do something, something about it. All right? And the first step that he takes is, let's just deny it. All right? So this is, uh, I just want to go through really quickly a few things that people do to try and deal with guilt. Well, one thing that we do is we do good deeds, don't we? It's like I've done a whole bunch of bad stuff. It's a whole kind of balance scales, all right? And it's weird because nowhere in the Bible does it say you've got, you just got to balance out the good and the evil. But somehow we just work out, we just do lots of good stuff, get on the treadmill, work really, really hard, pay off the Mars bar and the Snickers bar that I just ate. All right, and then we'll just even it up and I'll be sweet. So we, we do good deeds. We try to deal with guilt by trying to be a, a better person. We compare ourselves to others, don't we? It's just like, because honestly, like I read, uh, those of you who are around for the combined service that we had a few weeks ago, I honestly think that a lot of these, like Women's Day New Idea, is all about actually making people feel better about themselves. Thinking, uh, help them to think that maybe they could be a celebrity but then show them a whole bunch of bad celebrities so that they can go, oh, I feel a lot better about myself right now. All right? And it's almost like we get that inquisitive thing going on. And if we can just be better than the next person, we'll be sweet. All right? As, and most of you right now are thinking that right now. You're just going to think, I'm not a blue supporter, so I'm better than Peter. All right? It just yeah, it helps you to feel more righteous and holy and deals with your guilt. You can become, some people get absolutely obsessed with their guilt and they just get stuck in it. And it just becomes like me taking my boys fishing, you know? Does everyone know what I'm talking about? Fishing line's thin and it's clear. And when you have three, there's lots of thin, clear fishing line intertwined. You know what I'm talking about? And it just gets messy. And sometimes getting obsessed with your guilt is like that. Some people think the way out of my guilt is literally to punish myself. If I beat myself up enough, I'm going to be okay. I'm actually going to get myself out of this guilty place. You can ostracise yourself and separate yourself from other people, which is a kind of punishment because you're kind of going, I don't deserve to be with these other people. Some people go around and they think that part of actually dealing with their guilt is telling everyone how bad they are. Which is weird because it doesn't really work. Just everyone starts thinking you're a really bad person. All right? Which is weird because then you've got all the other people going, I'm not telling anyone how bad I am because then they'll think I'm bad. Right? And so what you end up with is you end up with the people who are trying to deal with their guilt by telling everyone they're bad and the other people who never tell anyone stuff that they've done that's bad and this person thinks they'll never be perfect like the other person and this person's going, I'm glad I'm not like them. You get that? It's just this weird kind of bind that we get in. Some people go around in the reverse and say, I'm actually really, really good. So let's start thinking about all the good things about me. 
All right, let's not think about the bad things anymore because, look, I've done some of those, but seriously, you just need... I'm going to market myself to you on Facebook because I reckon that's a lot of what happens on Facebook is I'm just going to market myself and I'm going to persuade you that I'm a really good person, so I'll pick out the good things that I do. You know, I'm not like Hitler. I didn't kill six million people. I never killed anyone. I'm actually a really good guy. All right? Never done anything for, everyone, for anyone else in my life, but... Man, I'm not as bad as that guy, and I've actually got some good qualities. And ultimately, you can deny that you're really guilty, uh, and basically what you're doing is you're denying and deceiving yourself. All right, we've got 15 minutes, all right? Some of you are going, I'm ready to stop now. Well, you'll be ready to stop in 15 minutes, I can tell you, because this is where it gets nasty. God deals with guilt and sin in a totally different way. He doesn't tell you to work harder. He doesn't tell you to focus on the good things, which is a whole therapy that's come out, strengths-based therapy, right? He doesn't say, look at all your strengths and find out what you're really good at and just try not to look at the other stuff. You just go, no, God looks at all the nasty, festy, dirty stuff and he's got a different plan. And it comes out in Hebrews 1. He purifies it. You only need to purify something that's festy and disgusting and filthy. Agreed? That's what purification is. This is a weird thing. Like, I'll just throw this question out to you now just to think about. We're all pretty happy to go around and talk about God's rescued me, God saved me. Why doesn't anyone ever go around saying God purified me? Why don't they? Why don't they say, man, I was just filthy with my own stuff. I was absolutely filthy and he purified me. You know, I was thinking about this and I thought, you know what, one of the reasons is, I reckon, is because we're less guilty if we're a victim. Fair enough? We're less guilty if we're a victim. It's like, I just want to be someone who's caught in a rip and they were doing everything right, but unfortunately, I just got caught in a sin rip, you know, and God's just got to come and save me. When in reality, you're probably drunken, on the beach, the lifesavers are standing there trying to stop you from going in, all right? And you start beating them up, okay? And then you can't even swim that well when you're drunk, but you're swimming out and you're, they're going, there's a rip out there and you're dead, so you're going to die. And you're going, I want the rip, all right? Seriously, I don't have enough water in my lungs, so I'm going for that rip and I just want to fill it up. Isn't that weird? I think uh, it's how notion of being saved, and, and the Bible talks about it, so I'm not going to say it's a bad thing, but, you know, it would be good to have a little bit more balance. I mean, that would weed out some of your non-Christian friends if you said to them, not, I got saved by Jesus, but I got purified by him, because I was messy. I was seriously big-time messy, and it wasn't just what other people did to me. I did the biggest job on myself. I got in there making those mud pies, and I just trashed myself. So God's got a remedy for what he's going to do with sin. But all I want to do for the next little bit as we close out today is I just want to heighten your definition in your own mind of what sin is and how bad it is. All right? Because our culture doesn't like to do it. Um, I, don't like to, I don't even like to preach on this stuff because the Bible actually pushes the boundaries of decency and the language that it uses to talk about sin. All right? And some of the stuff I'm going to say, man, I've just been thinking about whether I'm even going to tell you, but I'm just kind of... Well, it's in the Bible, 
All right, so don't take it up with me, just take it up with God. We're just going to look at a whole bunch of scriptures on sin. Because if you're actually going to appreciate the purifying death of Christ on the cross, you've got to understand how filthy and stained and disgusting and dirty you are and we are in ourselves before he helps us. So here we go. Tell me whether, as I read through this, whether this, is, this sin just sounds like a mistake from this passage out of Romans 3. Okay? Here we go. None is righteous. Not even one. No one understands. No one even seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. This is like if God leaves us all alone, it just gets messy like you wouldn't believe. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths of ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now that's, I hope you're with me on this, that, that's not just a mistake, is it? Like that, that is a willful orientation and a willful direction that people are going in. That's what sin is. Sin is intense. Let's go through some more. 2 Peter 2 verse 14. Listen to this description of false prophets. They have eyes full of adultery. Listen to this phrase. Insatiable for sin. Like if God leaves us alone, every single one of us would just be insatiable for sin. We, we couldn't get satisfied with it. We'd just go after it and want more and more and more and more and more. I joked with an old friend of uh, my dad's in a Chinese restaurant in Sydney about MSG. You know, I mean, that's, 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 we're at a Chinese restaurant and he goes, what do you want? They were paying and I'm just going, I'll just have a cup of MSG, all right? <laughs> just give me that because apparently, I don't know, it was a dumb joke, but apparently it can kill you if you have too much of it. But when you go to a Chinese restaurant and they use lots of MSG, it just makes you thirsty and you just can't get enough. Has anyone ever had that? Sensation, you just, and you just drink of water and water and water and all of a sudden you get a water gut, all right? Because you just can't get enough water. Because you just have become insatiable. This is what it's like for sin. This is what sin's like. What about this one? Job 15, 16. Job says, uh, man is someone who drinks injustice like water. Like sin, that's drinking sin like water. That's the natural man. Natural person, natural woman. You go to Romans chapter 6, and Romans chapter 6 is a fascinating read if you want to look at the nature of sin. Sin is not just a mistake in Romans chapter 6. It's actually an evil force that conquers the heart. It's almost personified. Paul kind of personifies it and says it's like a person that puts people into slavery and into bondage. It is a festy, festy thing. And in 1 John 1 verse 7, 8, we find out that what sin does is it deceives people about how serious it is, right? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And some of you, maybe even this morning, are just going, oh, Pete, you're just kind of labouring it a little bit hard and like it's not that bad. I'm just, that's sin. Deceiving you. It is that. It's worse. In fact, I don't think anyone here has a proper, precise understanding of how bad sin is. You just don't get it. I don't get it. 
It's just festy stuff. And when you sit there and you kind of go, oh, man, you're just getting too intense on it. Well, I'm sorry, but the Bible gets very, very intense on it. We're going to get to some really intense stuff now. Let's start with Genesis chapter 6, which is the uh, chapter that's about the flood. Let me just read you uh, the first section. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every, listen to this, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's seriously, if you're not backed into a corner by the end of that one, you just, you're unconscious maybe, I don't know. Because that's, that's it. Everything that they want to do is bad all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I'll blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. Go back a few chapters earlier and you've got man and woman in the garden and they're, they're beautiful and they're perfect. Can you imagine the majesty that they had? They were naked and they weren't ashamed. There wasn't anything defiling about the nakedness. All right. There wasn't any lust, any of that sort of stuff. It was just beautiful. It was incredibly majestic. They were reflecting God so purely. And within a few chapters of Genesis, we get to this place where everything that they want to do all the time is evil. And you know what God decides to do? Like, think about this. God decides to kill almost everyone. This evil and this sin thing is so festy that he would rather have corpses floating in the water then let it keep going the way that it was. I mean, can you imagine? I don't know whether there was like, seriously, would you, if you're on the ark, you wouldn't want a porthole seat, would you? Let's be honest about it. You know, you just, there's your next door neighbour, just floated past. And it's almost like God would rather have stinking, putrid corpses in the water floating past than let this evil and this sin go unabated. That is a horrific thing. That is a huge disaster and tragedy, but you can see there that God, does, God thinks evil is a terrible, terrible thing. In uh, Revelation chapter 18, uh, it talks about how uh, the sins of Babylon are heaped high as heaven. I think about that. They are just piled. It's like, we're going to have to pack this well, you know. We just went away for a... For camping, as I told you before, and it's like I'm going to have to pack the trailer well and the car well, otherwise we're not going to get everything in. You pack the sins well, it reaches to heaven. That's how many there are. Sin is filthy and it makes you filthy. See, this is what purification is. This is why it's really important for you to understand this and for me to understand this so that we understand what Jesus did. Here's a couple of more scriptures. Lamentations 1 verse 8. Listen to this, Jerusalem sinned grievously, that's Israel, therefore she became filthy. It's one thing the principal at the school here has talked about quite a few times, is he, he says to students all the time, he says, you've just got to realise that what Jesus does is he makes you clean. Because when you don't follow Jesus and you disobey him and you don't do what he's asked you to do, you get dirty and you get filthy. Isaiah 1 verse 6, let me read you the uh, verse 5 leading into it. You will revolt more and more, the whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. Listen to this. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it. Listen to this. But wounds, bruises and putrefying sores, 
They've not been clothed or bound up or soothed with ointment. You know what putrefying means? I'll give you a definition on it. It means to decay or rot and produce a fetid smell. So the sins of God's people, I mean, think about it. It's, it's like you've got sores and, and, and flesh that's literally rotting on you. All right? And I'm just, it's getting gross, all right? But we're just going gross because the Bible goes gross. You've got this pus and they're just open wounds and sores. This is what sin is. I mean, think about a, a pussy wound that is not healing. That's sin. In God's view, that's sin. Isaiah 5 verse 11. Check this out. Ephraim is oppressed. Crushed in judgment. Why? Because he was determined to go after filth. It's in the Bible. It's like all of a sudden we're just going again. Okay, well, sin is a pursuit after filth. That's what it is. This is intense. This is Proverbs 30, verse 12. There are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. I looked up the uh, translation and the meaning of this, the original meaning of the word behind this word, filth. All right? Now, the writer here obviously is talking about spiritual uncleanness and spiritual filth. All right? But do you know what word would have been translated there if it was talking about physical uncleanness? Excrement. Dung. I mean, think about that now. There are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their dung. That's how the Bible views sin. Like It is just festy, festy, festy. And the weird thing is that the Bible says that human beings pursue it. And in a weird kind of way, in a really disgusting way, we pursue dung. And some of you are probably going, oh man, like, this is a bit offensive. Maybe I wish I had a kid that was crying, right? <laughs> I'll head out the back up there. Oh, your sin's offensive. Your sin's really offensive to God. And you need to know, and I need to know, that this is a deep, deep hole that we're in. You see, you can even, the Bible even talks about people who, who try to do something about their filth. It's talking about that a little bit in Proverbs 30, verse 12. But check this one out from Isaiah 64. Some of you may have heard this before. We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. See, I, I did a bit of study on this, and I, honestly, I'll toss up whether I'd even say this today, because this is offensive. But you know... What he's saying here, I'm just going to read this. A polluted garment, the polluted garment that it's talking about is a used menstrual rag. Look, you can go to commentaries and that's what they say it is. That's what it is. Not just signifying dirtiness but uncleanness in the Levitical system. That's confronting, isn't it? Oh, that's, that's brutal. Like, it's almost like, is it all right to say that in church? And it's, this is where God pushes the boundaries of human decency just to help us to understand what it's like. 
You see, they're like, I was always talking about the things that we think are good. He's not even talking about the stuff that's bad. He's talking about the things that we think are good. And we'd go, oh, it's just a mistake. Well, I don't think so. I think the Bible says it's just a mistake. 2 Peter 2 verse 22 talks about sin being mud and sinners being pigs that love to lie in it. It also talks about how sin is dog's vomit and sinners are the ones that go and lick it up. Think about that. I mean, honestly, if you just you get a temptation this afternoon and you're just kind of going, well, yeah, I'm just not sure, I might have a shot at that one. And then you go, well, the Bible says that you having a shot at that is like licking up dog's vomit. That might help a little bit. Psalm 38 verse 5, the psalmist says, My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. You see, sinning is just so not befitting for people who belong to God, for people who are in his family. But we go back into it sometimes, don't we? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, Meditate on that. After making purification for sins, for yours and mine, for my polluted garments, for my dog's vomit, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. See, the writer of Hebrews wants you to know that the dirtiest and the darkest and the most disgusting that you get, that Jesus has purified it. I'm going to talk more about that next week. And that's a good reason not to give up. That's a good reason not to give up when you've done the same thing again that you've just done five and a half thousand times in a row. When you've done the same thing again or you've just done something new and you can't believe by your own standards you can't believe that you did that and you feel so disgusting and dirty and filthy. The writer of Hebrews wants you to know that Jesus makes purification for that. He cleans it. And I'll talk some more about that next week. I'm just going to pray and uh, maybe we'll just have the music guys come up and we'll uh, sing a little bit of that song. Maybe I'd invite you to stand with me. Have mercy upon us, God. God, we're all we've all been caught in a sense with uh, filth in our boogie bag. And there's no questioning our guilt. And our only hope, our only hope is that you would be merciful toward us. 
We desperately need your purification. God, I pray, honestly, I just pray that all these people would come back next week because they need to hear more about how you purify us, how you change us, and how you cleanse us.